School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. If I were to sum up the history of social media since 2000, it could go something like this. Started as a lark. Became a tool for business. Turned into a scapegoat for all that's wrong with society. But beyond the thought pieces about the place of social media in society lies a darker possibility. Social media can be the vector for the destruction of lives through the actions of terrorists. Today, we're talking about how the internet and social media have impacted terrorism and counterterrorism. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Audrey Kurth Cronin. Audrey is a professor here in the School of International Service and founding director of the Center for Security, Innovation, and New Technology. Audrey is an expert in terrorism and counterterrorism, security policy, and emerging technologies and their implications for security. Her most recent book is Power to the People, How Open Technological Innovation is Arming Tomorrow's Terrorists, which made Foreign Affairs' list of best books of 2019. Audrey, thank you for joining Big World. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Kay, for inviting me. And congratulations on the success of your latest book. I was glad to see it on that year-end best list. Thank you. Audrey, scholars and pundits broadly agree that we are in the fourth industrial revolution. And some of those scholars and pundits have said that there are aspects of today's technology that are considered unprecedented. First off, to get us all started, what is the fourth industrial revolution and how is it different from the first three? (laughs) Well, the fourth industrial revolution is a term that is um, a a little bit loose. Mm -hmm. I think that it incorporates technologies that are digitally connected. So not just information technologies and the internet, but also technologies that are connected through those networks. And uh, that includes robotics, everything from uh, UAVs, uh, social media, traditional kind of internet-connected information tools, but also the physical things, weapons and uh, devices and appliances of the Internet of Things. All of those are part of the fourth industrial revolution. Do you agree that technology today in this fourth industrial revolution is unprecedented? And if so, in what ways is it unprecedented? Are, Are we talking about the sheer mechanical achievements that power the technology or about the ways that technology affects our society in a broader sense or something else altogether? Well, there are ways in which it's unprecedented and ways in which it is not. I know that's a typical academic's answer, (laughs) but um, it's actually true. Uh, There are a lot of things about our technologies that are a part of this fourth industrial revolution that are not new. The technologies that we're dealing with today are actually pretty old. Most of them were uh, the result of basic research that was done in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and then they were shared in the 1990s. So, for example, the Internet came out of ARPANET, which was a governmental built net. Uh, the GPS is a very old technology. Google's search engine was built on an NSF grant. The government, the U.S. government in particular, played an enormous role in developing the basic research for virtually all of the major technologies that we're dealing with today. The, all the elements of your smartphone, for example, the microchips, the touch screens, the voice-activated systems, these are all pretty old technologies that have just been shared. So that's what comes uh, to the next point, which is what's new. Mm-hmm. What's new is the scale and the scope and the degree to which there's open access 
to all these technologies. So the, the scale being um, completely glo global, the scope meaning many different types of people and from around the world in many different countries, most of this is, is absolutely wonderful. The range of people who can use the technologies is um, both very liberating, but also, as is the case with anything in our realm of humanity, it also engages in uh, the risks because we have a small proportion of people who want to use technologies in nefarious ways. And with the power that each person now has in their pocket, in uh, the very, very powerful com computers that we carry around on our smartphones, each person has a much greater amount of lethal empowerment than we have experienced in past major uh, revolutions. So that's what's really new. And moving forward with our technologies, what's also very new is the degree to which we're developing capability for artificial intelligence. That's coming together. Artificial intelligence dates to at least the 1950s. But now we're, um, because of the scale and scope of our technologies, able to develop it much more effectively and um, in a mus much more muscular way. And the other thing that's new is the, the potential for quantum computing. It's very interesting to think about the unprecedented nature of it being the the wide access. And of course, we're carrying around these incredibly powerful devices, and we don't even think about it to a large degree. I think that we could probably do a whole episode about how new and emerging digital technologies have impacted states and multinational corporations and how it's changed business. But we're going to hone in on a specific area. How have digital technologies affected the strategies of terrorists and, and people who would do harm in a broader way? Well, okay, this is a question that I'm very concerned about because many people are focusing on the role of digital technologies for business and particularly for state um, relationships with each other. And those things are very important. The big focus upon the AI competition, for example, between the United States and China, that's extremely important. But nobody's thinking about, or very few people are thinking about, how ordinary people and some of them nefarious actors like terrorists can also use these technologies. So terrorists have for many, many decades, if not centuries, used technologies of information in um, propaganda purposes, in recruiting uh, members of their groups, in um, training people with weapons manuals, operational logistics, fundraising. These are all very old, established ways of dealing with technology that are now on steroids because we have much bigger, broader scale and scope. But they're also new aspects of today's digital technologies. The boundless interactivity that you have when you're carrying a smartphone and, and you can reach many people in many, many different countries. Mobile streaming videos and live streaming, that's a new element which is extraordinarily dangerous because it means that someone who is engaging in violence can immediately publicize what they're doing, which is after all one of the purposes of terrorism, to engage in symbolic violence. Um, First-person filmmaking is kind of related. Mm -hmm. It didn't used to be the case that any individual could suddenly be a relatively good television producer. And I don't want to overstate it, but you can certainly uh, engage in that kind of filmmaking in a way that's never before been the case. The ability of news to go viral. Uh, disinformation is, is, in a sense, democratized rather than relying upon the large uh, kind of state organs that we had in the 20th century. And end-to-end -end encryption, although that's not um, impervious, as we know from the latest stories about WhatsApp and the ability to, to get into WhatsApp 
end-to-end encryption that has come out recently. But in any case, that's a degree of security for the information that terrorists are spreading between themselves, which is unprecedented. And then the last thing is this, the ability of using these technologies to engage in psychological manipulation. I mean, actually getting into your head, uh, trying to draw people in through trigger mechanisms or tr- through targeting uh, susceptible communities. Uh, this is this is new. Right. So there are two things. One, there's I think there's that double-edged uh, sort of, of privacy when you talk about encryption, the same technology that would protect the privacy of people is also protecting the privacy of people who, who would do harm. And then you talk about the, um, the tactics of, of messaging. In your book, Power to the People, Audrey, you write that terrorists use similar tactics as online marketers. And I am someone who does a fair amount of digital advertising, so I'm familiar with some of these tactics, but listeners may not be. Briefly, what are these marketing techniques and how do they work? What are we talking about when we talk about online marketing? Well, Kay, this is dangerous territory for me since I'm not a marketer and you are. But I'll tell you what I've seen among terrorists. And uh, perhaps you can add Mm -hmm. uh, more about the tools that I don't uh, am not familiar with. But in any case, uh, terrorists have engaged in targeting, trying to find specific communities that are characterized by their behaviors or their their personal characteristics, their identities, Um, algorithms, uh, tools that drive traffic in ways that uh, serve their interests, bundling so that if you stumble on one thing, you can find something else accidentally in the same place. So putting messages in in uh, bundles with with uh, with products sometimes um, triggers the whole social media world is oriented toward the ability to use extremely attractive um, mechanisms to draw your attention either sounds or sometimes uh, colors red is particularly um, attractive and that's one of the reasons why when you get notifications it's a little red number on your phone um, these things are also uh, used by terrorists to get attention as well so triggers uh, they don't they don't have the ability to change what's on your phone but they use uh, emotional triggers uh, you know references to uh, events that uh, are, are horrible and then draw people's attention or other types of um, emotionally driven triggers are very effective for them. So all of these things are marketing tools that I, I'm not implying that they're as good as major companies, mm-hmm. but these tools have been in place for, I don't know, five or 10 years now. And uh, it's only inevitable that non-state actors like terrorists are also going to have access to them. And they do. Yeah, And sort of the whole idea of online advertising at this point is trying to serve people ads that they're more likely to be responsive to based on their own online behavior and sites that they visit, uh, emails they send, all types of information that we we sort of don't think about being used in that way. And certainly on social media platforms, it's, it's tremendously based on what you've been doing and the kinds of things that you've uh, been looking at. And it, it, you think about these tactics that you see all the time. So I think about L.L. Bean is using this to sell jackets. If I've been looking for jackets, I'm going to get jacket ads. And if I've been to their site, I'm going to keep seeing that same jacket. It's going to follow me around on all the different sites that I Isn't look that at. Isn't annoying sometimes? It is. Especially when you've already <laughs> bought a new jacket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got the jacket. But it, it, it is very interesting and frightening to think about those types of behaviors, because it isn't just the jacket that I bought that follows me around. It's all different kinds of jackets, because I saw that I was looking at jackets, so I'm getting served jacket ads. 
So if I've been looking at different types of information, maybe I'm vulnerable in some way emotionally because of a, a group that I'm part of or because of something that happened to me in the past, to think about being targeted in that way, kind of a psychographic characteristic, geographic targeting, whatever, that's being used on social media by terrorists. And I hear you say that it's not quite to the level of, of business targeting at this point. So that do you think we're headed in that direction? Oh, no. I, I don't want to overstate mm-hmm. the okay. problem of terrorism. Or, you know, when I talk about terrorism, these things also apply to insurgents, small groups, mm-hmm. um, individuals who engage in violence. I'm talking about people who have nefarious purposes and who are non-state. So, you know, terrorists is only a subset even of that. But that's always a small proportion of humanity. But what, they, what they're able to do now is leverage their capabilities And when it comes to the history of that kind of asymmetrical violence, being able to leverage your capabilities is what gives you power. If you can get people to respond, then you gain power, even if you're, to begin with, a very weak actor. Right. And that is one of the things that social media does. It's a great leveler for any kind of niche anything, interest of any kind. You can find a community. And if you can leverage that to give it a much bigger megaphone, and that is kind of what you're talking about. Exactly what I'm talking about. Audrey Kurth Cronin, it's time to take five. This is when you, our guest, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. So what five policies would you institute to influence the future of digital technologies and security? Okay, well, with the understanding that reordering the world does not include me becoming a billionaire, (laughs) I'll give you a a set of five. Um, The first thing I do is improve the cybersecurity of our infrastructure, especially the financial sector, but also the electrical grid, water, transportation, and all the things that are vital to our societies. I think this is an extremely high priority for policy. Secondly, is to develop better measures against weaponized armed drones. Things like you should be allowed to have geofencing around your home if you like, if you would want it. Thirdly is allow individuals to purchase appliances and devices that are not connected to the Internet of Things because those things are vulnerable and there's just no need for your refrigerator to be connected. Fourth is to develop a bill of rights for the ownership of your individual data. That's extremely important because data is uh, a very powerful tool that's being used in lots of ways that are completely uncontrolled and in some respects dangerous. Fifth and finally is to build smart global measures to guide or even regulate artificial intelligence, particularly as it's being used in weapons. And that might involve um, state-to-state arms control style negotiations. I think it's inevitable that we're going to have to do that because artificial intelligence can be used for good but also could be extraordinarily dangerous and destabilizing in terms of our global security. So basically, overall, what I'd say is more than the five policy prescriptions is we really must educate our lawmakers and the general public to be much savvier about the risks and opportunities of our digital world because it's going to be our children, Kay, and our grandchildren Mm -hmm. who deal with it. Exactly. Thank you. So, Audrey, with digital technology, it's, it's more difficult for states to control national narratives. And the media landscape is dramatically changing. Sometimes it feels like it's, it's changing in the minute by minute. 
I think that we've all witnessed positive examples of this, like when government protesters use social media to organize in Egypt and Sudan and Hong Kong as, as recently as 2019. We've also seen the crackdown that typically follows. Sometimes this is in the form of governments shutting off access to the Internet altogether. Do you think overall this trend of social media organizing helps or hurts democracies and democratic interests? Well, that remains to be seen. Again, an academic answer, but it's also the case that history is unfolding, and it also depends upon the particular country and the laws of that country. So the degree to which protesters can be crushed may be one thing in um, in a place like uh, Hong Kong and another thing in a place like the United States. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that every sort of protest should be crushed. That's not my point. My right. point is that our laws are not well structured to be able to guide us to the most right and appropriate ways of allowing people to express themselves, but not engage in um, in nefarious acts on the one hand, and then allowing states to provide security for the broad range of their citizens without crushing the ability to express yourself. And that's a balance that is different in different parts of the world. The one thing that we now know is that it's not possible to engage in a popular uprising and to be successful unless you have a deep amount of organization behind it. So the kind of flash-in-the-pan protests that can be gathered together very quickly with social media are not necessarily an effective way of engaging in political change. And as we begin to learn that, we also see the limits of popular use of social media. I think, and I don't want to trivialize the internet or the use of the internet, but the truth is a lot of us, especially Americans, the way that we use the internet is especially trivial. We watch cute hedgehog videos, we watch cat videos, we watch videos of recipes coming together, we share recipes. The idea of governments using social media in those moments when we're watching a funny video is very far from our minds. We're not thinking about it being used this way. But nonetheless, digital technologies are being used by government institutions in a variety of ways. So how do governments use social media, digital technologies to combat rogue actors? Right. Well... Um, the you know governments uh, like our government you are using digital technology very effectively in intelligence, in targeting, um, uh, in finding out exactly what the nature of the target might be. Um, the depending on the government we're talking about, uh, for example, China has a fairly widely known um, firewall as to what kinds of uh, media that people within China can access. Uh, Kashmir was recently just cut off uh, of all their access to the to networks and social media and the internet at all. So there are very good blunt tools that governments have, and there are some more refined scalpel-like tools that they use in um, in particularly in active combat zones or in intelligence operations. But uh, that's not really that that really quite depends upon the legal and governmental structure. And it's not it's it's hard to generalize about these things. In the United States, for example, I think we're facing within the next several decades the need to recalibrate a lot of the basic understanding that we have about things like the Fourth Amendment, search and seizure, you know, what is privacy? What does it mean? And the First Amendment, what is freedom of speech and when does it 
when does it bleed over into um, abuse? Mm -hmm. uh, property. What does it mean to actually own something? You know, the, the smartphone that I brought with me today is absolutely useless unless it has the software within it. The software does not belong to me. And so do we still own the physical things that we have? All of these basic things are one of the reasons why, as we started out talking about, the fourth industrial revolution is really shifting a lot of our understanding of basic human uh, rights and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to be, you're right, you're so right that there has to be this look at what these rights that were established in a very different time even mean, and for so long... You know, the right to free speech was abridged in a number of ways. One of them is you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater. But if you're shouting fire on social media, um, what what are your responsibilities? What is and what can the law do to you? Or or how 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 can those behaviors be abridged and how should they be abridged without unduly suppressing the First Amendment? It's just a really interesting and hard question. I mean, do you think that, do you think the U.S. government is even up to this task, frankly? It has to be. What's the alternative? And I would also go beyond the U.S. government and talk about the media. I think the media have been struggling. They've been at the forefront of many of these changes. And the fact that the media landscape is so fractionalized, that there are filter bubbles, that there's um, the whole un the whole business model has been undermined in terms of paying for content. How is it that you maintain high standards when you can't get any kind of revenue for the content that you're providing? Delegitimizing the search for truth, delegitimizing specific facts, um, relativizing, if that's a word, word uh, you know, making everything somewhat relative when it comes to what anyone believes. No one now believes anything because they are, they're caught up in conspiracy theories at times. Uh, there's a kind of a race to the bottom when it comes to the media, and there are people who are standing against that within the media. I'm not trying to impugn anybody's um, honest hard work, but all you have to do is look at that one sector of our society and see that the government can't fix all of that. Right. Some of that has to be reshuffling that business model in a way that, again, goes back toward protecting what it is to have a fact and to be seeking the truth. I think that Fourth Amendment question is also huge with search and seizure. And, and uh, when you think about back doors into iPhones, and they always ask about the back door, and they say, oh, there is no back door, and well, we want one. And what actually exists and is possible and has been created by these privately held companies is unclear, honestly. And it, it may be clear to the government, but sometimes I don't really know if they know exactly the technology that they're dealing with when they're dealing with privately held companies that have taken these technologies and advanced them so far. And that just seems like one of the major issues that's going to have to be addressed is what is your expectation of privacy with your communications through your phone. It's just going to have to be. Yes, I agree. And this fight between the question of encryption versus law enforcement is a very important fight. Well, one of the big differences in this industrial revolution, I think, is that in the third industrial revolution, the last, particularly if you look back into the 19th century, you can see that the automobile or the development of electricity, these were things where you had private companies that were developing things that had to be supported on an infrastructure that was ultimately built by government. So you had cars, but they drove on roads, and the roads were either state, city, or federal government uh, built. 
it's the opposite now. What you have is private companies that are controlling cyberspace. And the government is coming in much later in the process. And the government can't build the infrastructure because the infrastructure has been built by private companies. Right. So we have to come up with new solutions to the many threats and opportunities of the digital age. Audrey, this is the existential question that social media tends to provoke. And it's the broad question that I'll put to you in closing. Overall, do you think social media is good or bad for people and society? Wow. Um, (laughs) I think social media is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, it's both good and bad. Another academic answer, but I think it's actually true. I mean, there's no winding the clock back. I think that allowing people to connect through social media is a good thing, but we're naive if we don't understand that we're going to have to have good regulation as well. Right. At this point, it no longer matters if it's good or bad. It's inevitable. Exactly. Okay. Audrey Kurth-Cronin, thank you for joining Big World and helping us understand how social media is used by terrorists and by governments. It's been really great to speak with you. I've enjoyed it, Kay. Thank you. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be like a mug of hot chocolate on a snowy day. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codeman. Until next time. 